Welcome. I'm Kathy Pike, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you here today for our uh, episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders with our guest, Dr. Chris Fairburn. Chris is truly a pioneer in the field. He has set standards across a wide range of aspects of understanding clinical research or advancing clinical research and clinical care, uh, particularly around the nature of eating disorders and the treatment, behavioral treatments of eating disorders. Uh, Dr. Fairburn uh, is a uh, professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of Oxford, and he has a long list of awards and recognitions for the work that he has uh, accomplished and led during the course of his exemplary career, which has spanned a number of decades. So welcome, Chris. We're thrilled to have you here and looking forward to hearing what your big idea is that we will discuss today with the caveat that given your career, I know we could discuss many big ideas. And uh, I've asked you to focus on one in particular. Uh, Others may come up as we go along, but we'll hone in on one. And before we get there, I thought we'd just start, sort of start at the beginning with a little bit of a conversation about your early years and what anything about your growing up years that might have set the stage for the career that was to unfold? Well, in retrospect, um, my first semester at school, when I was five, I've got the school report written by my teacher, and it said that I didn't show enough ambition. (laughs) Um, So I think I've probably been trying to counter that uh, impression ever since. Um, though I've only recently rediscovered the uh, <laughs> report. Uh-huh. Those, <laughs> those they, memories get buried <laughs> in there, right? <laughs> yeah, unconsciously, I'm trying to deal with this. That's right. <laughs> I, think I think we need to send a letter to your <laughs> kindergarten teacher. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, apart from that, um, I was not a particularly industrious person at school. Um, I... Uh, did well enough to get to Oxford, um, so that's that's good. But I, I didn't really work very hard. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the sixties, and I was very caught up in. Uh, I was rebelling. Uh huh. Um, what was happening at in Oxford in the sixties? I mean, it, there's uh, a lot happening all around the world. But yeah, yeah. Either, what did that feel like? Well, for you? my first, I went up in '69 to Oxford. Uh, I uh, was um, protesting continuously about the Vietnam War. I only wore pink. I didn't wear shoes. Uh-huh. Um, and I was in a, a subculture of people who um, did a lot of talking uh, and thinking and about getting the world, making the world a different place. So you got to Oxford with the message that you were not particularly industrious or ambitious and also with uh, something in your spirit about wanting to see the world be a different place. 
Definitely. And, and also not accepting really anything from someone with authority. Uh-huh. Uh, intellectually, make mm -hmm. your own mind up about things. Mm -hmm. Don't accept truths from mm -hmm. old generations. Well, um, it's, I think it's really interesting because that mentality, that mindset would, in the right environment that piques your curiosity, would potentially unleash a whole lot of new ideas and innovation. And that certainly is what we saw when you decided what you wanted to do. So yeah. how did you get, when at Oxford, did you start out studying medicine? Like, how did you get to medicine? And then how did you yeah. get to psychiatry? Um, I was really pushed into it by family. There was a strong tradition of being doctors. Um, I wasn't clear what I wanted to do. I thought Oxford would be fun uh, and interesting. And I, really almost did whatever i wasn't too bothered about the subject mm -hmm. uh, i was more interested in going to the place mm -hmm. um so i just went along with the sort of family tradition uh, in oxford you can't actually do medicine you actually have to do a degree in something else so uh, it was physiology mm -hmm. and and it primarily with medicine running in parallel with it i found both quite i didn't like physiology it was boring um I didn't go to the lectures or the practicals. Um, and um, but I got a good, quite a good degree. Um, and then the medicine, I didn't enjoy at all. I mean, it was very hierarchical. And there I was strolling around the white coat with long hair, feeling mm -hmm. not identifying with anyone who was there. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was a bit dispiriting. I liked public health, mm -hmm. no white coats in public health. Um, and then psychiatry was the last thing I did on my sort of training rotation. And, uh, I was very dubious about that because I'd been reading about anti-psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I was really quite up in anti-psychiatry and mm -hmm. I was ready to fight. Um, but it totally won me over. Uh, and the psychiatry department was very atypical. It was primarily research on psychological treatments. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it did. It was world famous for it. Uh, it was the only place in the world that was really doing it. And uh, I got immersed in that and hooked on it mm -hmm. within weeks. Um, and it was a special place. I mean, they, if you were interested, they got really interested in you. And um, I was given a patient to treat. That never happens as a medical student. So that was exciting. Um, uh, and um, I heard that there was a sort of sex therapy sort of set up there, and I joined a training group in sex therapy, uh, having almost no sexual experience myself, I might add. But, um, <laughs> uh, and the person running it was John Bancroft, and he, he became head of the Kinsey Institute. Yeah. Um, and uh, the psychological treatment stuff was run by Michael Gelder, who was the sort of pioneer in devising psychological treatment, short-term psychological treatment. So it was a great place to be. It was a very exciting place to be. They were very welcoming to me. And uh, I was convinced by the end of the period there that I was, this is what I wanted to do. So you mentioned that you got to see a patient, something that you didn't get to do in, in other areas of medicine. Yeah. You know, the, 
our patients teach us and they change our understanding of the world. Mm. And it sounds like this is in some ways, this patient who you saw was really significant in helping he you was, start your course. And so were some of the couples I helped who had sexual problems. Interesting. Uh, very different type of issues. Um, so the, the uh, person I treated, he had a, specific phobia, very specific phobia of rats, which mm -hmm. isn't an issue unless you're a baker. Um, and he was a baker. Um, and he was getting terrified of going to work, yet he was a major figure in the bakery. Um, but he, he was terrified in case there was, might be a rat anywhere mm -hmm. near him. Um, and it was having a huge effect on his work, his also his self-esteem. Um, and he was potentially going to lose his job. Uh, and uh, obviously very much specialized in specific phobias. So we, we did a sort of desensitization sort of program with him. And in probably about six, eight sessions, done. Amazing, he, he's, right? he lost it. Mm -hmm. um, it was very interesting because he was so happy and all that sort of stuff. But I also realized he had some other issues which were, were just hadn't been affected at all, um, but it, it, it was a learning experience and he, he was very happy with the outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and some of the, the sexual problems were slightly similar where there was an isolated problem in some, for some people that you could sort out, but accompanying relationship issues were more complex and uh, harder to sort out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it so, was a learning experience, I enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 And it was the, it sounds like that's the moment where the light went on that you were going to go into behavioral health and understanding psychiatry, the mind, um, what these disorders were about. How, so how did you get from this baker who has a specific phobia of rats and sex therapy and it sounds like sort of a bastion of behavior therapy and yeah it was yeah and um from there to eating disorders right so um I had to train in psychiatry somewhere um michael gelder had the head at oxford said you've learned everything you can from oxford psychiatry you could go somewhere else mm -hmm. and he said either go to the Maudsley in london or edinburgh mm -hmm. uh being rebellious and Maudsley being the traditional place to go, I chose not to go there um, and chose Edinburgh, which has turned out to be a brilliant decision. Mm -hmm. And I was, had a day, two days a week for research. Mm -hmm. Big problem, what do I research? Right. Um, so, because um, I wanted to do something to do with psychological treatments, mm -hmm. um, but you have to have a problem to tr sort of work on. So the first few months, I was sort of worried about this because I thought they're going to ask me at some point, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. uh, and then a problem fell into my lap, uh, basically, which was bulimia. Mm -hmm. So apart from my research days, there would be one day in an outpatient clinic. Mm -hmm. um, and one day, uh, we'd all, all start together and the professor would hand out patients as well, letter, referral letters and say, Fairburn, you go and see this person. And he said to me, okay, we've got a referral of someone with anorexia. You see her and come back to me in an hour. 
Mm -hmm. I went to see her and I knew nothing about anorexia other than they're meant to be thin. Mm -hmm. um, so I took a history and it was all sounded like completely anorexia, except she wasn't underweight. And this was perplexing. She described everything, everything she should have been underweight uh, from uh -huh. everything she said. Anyway, I sort of went out to Kendall, Bob Kendall, and said, well, it's sort of like anorexia. She got absolutely everything, but she's not underweight. And he said, it's ridiculous, Feb, and you can't weigh her or something. You've made a mistake. So he went in, came out five minutes later looking sheepish, said, you're right, it's very odd, this. Um, and he said, well, okay, do two things. Come back next week and tell me the world literature on people with anorexia are not underweight and get her better. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I tried to read the literature and there wasn't one. And I st started to sort of uh, see her with trying to work out what's going on and then try and work out how to help her. And after about three or four meetings, I, in the end, I said, I, I, I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't understand why she's not underweight. I can just ask her. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of beating around the bush. Uh, so I said, I'm terribly sorry. I know it's a very sensitive topic, but I don't understand why you're not underweight. You, you hardly eat anything. You're exercising. And she burst into tears and told me about binging. I didn't know about binging. Mm -hmm. um, my reading on anorexia didn't mention binging. Um, and uh, of course, it then all made, started to make sense. Mm -hmm. Anyway, about four weeks later, another person came with an almost identical problem. And about six weeks, another one. Mm -hmm. And then I started collecting them, as it were, and I contacted all the local psychiatrists, and they were seeing the occasional one. Mm -hmm. And I asked them all to be referred to me, because no one really wanted to see these people. So I, I got a sort of bunch of probably about 10, 15 people within about six months, um, and was working away with them, mm -hmm. trying to work out a way of understanding what they were doing and a way out of the problem. Mm -hmm. And that, that's how I sort of got into it. Um, mm -hmm. It was a very odd situation because um, people would ask me what I was doing, in colleagues and things. And I'd say, I'm treating this problem. And they said, what is the problem? There's no word for saying I didn't have a word okay. for the problem. Yeah. Well, it's a sort of problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, sort of, it's sort of like a funny form of anorexia, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was sort of totally taken aback in 1979, I've been two years of working with these people, right. when Gerald Russell's paper came out called, called Anonymous Variant of Anorexia Nervosa, or Bulimia Nervosa, Anonymous Variant of Anorexia right. this A landmark paper. Yeah, absolutely. Classic paper, mm -hmm. a very important paper. And he described basically Bulimia Nervosa and gave it a name. Gave it a name. Mm -hmm. It was a very clear description of exactly the people I was seeing. They mm -hmm. were identical. But he said two things which I thought were frankly wrong. Mm -hmm. One, that it was untreatable. And I was getting at least half the people better, mm -hmm. clearly better. And they seemed to be staying better because I followed following them up. And two, he said it was uncommon. Mm -hmm. I thought it can't be uncommon. I've seen almost many patients as he has, and no one knows who I am. Um, and these people keep it secret. Uh -huh. um, they, I've seen people, they have five-year histories, eight-year histories, 
of total secrecy, successful secrecy. Right. Um, there could be huge numbers of people just like them out there. So I was very dubious about the uncommon, and I was very dubious about the statement it was untreatable or intractable. Mm -hmm. And it's, it was those two things launched my research career. Yeah. Um, now, most people, when they launch their research career, they maybe they apply for you know, a grant to government, maybe they get some foundation startup money. You went to the public. Tell us about your, <laughs> you know, what did you do to say, well, you know, I, I'm looking at this and thinking it's a different story. Let me see how I can test my, my impression. Yeah, so I, I had these two things I disagreed with Russell about. One that he said it was uncommon, and one that he said it was untreatable. So there were two different issues. Mm -hmm. um, the treatment issue, I needed to go back to Oxford to work on that. That was the place that you do treatment research. Um, but this uncommon business, it was a real challenge. I mean, how could I find out if there were lots of people out there vomiting, binging, having bulimia without telling anyone? And it sort of came to me, um, I, don't know, I can't quite remember how it came to me, but it came to me so why didn't I put a little advert or, or piece in Cosmopolitan magazine, which was very popular amongst this age group mm -hmm. and this sort of uh, women in particular, that just described saying a little bit about bulimia and then saying, if you think you've got this problem, write to Fairburn. Mm -hmm. uh, with a bit of persuasion, Cosmopolitan agreed to this. I mean, initially, the, the editor said none of our people would do anything like that, our readers but anyway, we got, got around that. Um, and um, so in the May issue, 1980 issue of Cosmopolitan, if you look at it, on the health reports page, there's a piece about two inches long and one <laughs> inch wide saying new the eating. Old-fashioned classified yeah, ads, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so there it was. And... Um, uh, over a thousand people wrote to me within two weeks, and I was just inundated. And uh, it was very moving. I mean, they wrote letters that were awful. They were describing hating themselves, being ashamed, guilty, wanting help, but also huge reassurance knowing they're not the only one. Mm -hmm. They thought they were the only one with the problem. And mm -hmm. to know that they weren't, that seemed very positive. Mm -hmm. But the first 800 I sent a questionnaire to, trying to identify what, exactly what features they had. Not that easy those days, sending 800 questionnaires. This was mm -hmm. a Gestetner type machines rolling things off. Um, right. It was a real hassle. Um, and anyway, immense, atypically high response rate. And it was very clear, 80% of the people um, had bulimia. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, I clearly over 500 cases. Um, There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. um, and this was obviously just getting the tip of an iceberg. Um, so that got published in the British Medical Journal and is regarded as the sort of the beginning of showing that this was not a rarity, but um, a significant health problem. Right. Um, Quite funnily, after a couple of weeks, the BBC rang me up and said, did anyone re reply to that funny thing you put in Cosmopolitan? 
well, I could barely find my phone for envelopes. Um, but um, I said, yes, I'm inundated. Um, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. We'll make a program about this. Um, and in, uh, it took about a year for this to be made. Uh, and they interviewed uh, me, Gerald Russell, mm -hmm. another psychiatrist, Hubert Lacey, um, about bulimia and some um, the cosmopolitan thing. And at my insistence, they didn't mention anything about gender distribution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously cosmopolitan is primarily read by women, uh, but TV is not watched. Is, uh, anyway, at the end of the program, it was, if you think you've got the problem mentioned on this program, write Fairburn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was a, sort of a bit of a disaster because I'd, it, so many con people contacted me. The hospital switchboard was blocked for two days. Um, <laughs> we had to have emergency lines put in. And I had my own post van came uh, with my own mail. Um, so it was quite extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was interesting was how few men uh, wrote in. And it's probably one of the best examples of there is an uneven distribution, or there was those days in yeah. terms of cross genders in, yeah. in the problem. So you are gathering in a very ecological kind of way some real real world data that this is a serious problem. Eating disorder was synonymous with anorexia nervosa. At the yes. Time. Then it kind of grew. Gerald Russell says it's rare, and you know. It maybe if he rewrote it today, he would have said it's new um, because I think he also came to see it wasn't nearly as rare as he thought it was. Yeah. Um, but it was a seminal piece. It um, catalyzes your. It wouldn't be you know considered scientifically you know rigorous today, but very rigorous in terms of its ecological validity of what's happening out there in the world. And, um, and really gets us launched, uh, blows open the field of eating disorders. Totally. To eating it, disorders. it totally catalyzed the field. Right. Gave a name for the thing, which is important. That's right. <laughs> and um, eating disorders are not just anorexia nervosa. We yeah. now have this other ex set of symptoms or syndrome. And your career starts growing, um, as you say, really um, in a rigorous way around understanding the nature of these disorders and the treatment for these disorders, in particular, the psychological treatments. Yeah. And uh, I had the good fortune of entering the scene coming out of graduate school and getting a call from Terry Wilson, right? Where, as we tell this history, we really tell a history of the times. Also, you're describing postal systems, I'm describing, <laughs> you know, land-based phone calls to inquire whether I would be interested in working with you all on an NIMH-funded clinical trial that's now a few years later. Uh, and you and I and Terry Wilson, Tim Walsh, Stuart Agris had a chance to collaborate on this clinical trial comparing cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal psychotherapy for the treatment of bulimia nervosa. Yeah. Um, you want to say a little bit about that and sure. how that grew? Um, I can, yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I uh, went back to Oxford 
did get a grant. Uh, <coughs> it took a it was a little difficult getting grants initially because the review committee had never heard of the disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, so they thought, this is a very interesting study you proposed, but we've not heard of the problem. Mm -hmm. So that had to sort of, that why cosmopolitan was helpful. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And they said, people won't these people won't cooperate. Uh, but I produced evidence that he did. And so I did a small trial that went very well. Uh, then uh, I was very lucky to... Uh, uh, be encouraged by the Oxford professor to apply to the Wellcome Trust, which was a huge foundation. And then we had a new scheme for leading British scientists to be supported. And I was very young. I was sort of, um, anyway, I was put forward, and I think I was just so odd compared to everyone else who were laboratory scientists that they let me in too. Um, so I, I got supported to do a study comparing. CBT, cognitive behavior therapy for bulimia, against a purely behavioral version where we took out basically all the stuff on body image. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, I'd met through a weird situation, Terry Wilson, who's expert, famous by then, very famous expert uh, on anxiety and psychological treatments. And he arranged for me to go to a place called the center Mm -hmm. which is a think tank at Stanford where you go for a year, an academic year, and you um, basically do what you like mm -hmm. for nine months. The only thing you have to do is have lunch together um, and give one talk. Uh, so it's not too pressurized in one sense, but actually some people find it very pressurized because there's nothing, no excuse for not being good at using <laughs> your book. Uh, but I was there with Terry Wilson and Stuart Agrass, and we hatched the idea of the study you're talking about, of doing a replication of the Oxford study, a big one, comparing IP and CBT, and, uh, and trying to work out. We were hoping that maybe different sorts of people would respond to the two treatments. And um, we needed very talented therapists, hence you got the phone call uh, from Terry Wilson. Um, and that study ran through the 90s, really. That's right. Uh, so it was a study in Stanford and um, Columbia, mm -hmm. uh, comp both comparing CBT and IPT. And the quality control was from Oxford. It was yeah. a good time, a great trial, and really the beginning, uh, as you say, of a whole series of studies around clinical trials, bringing some real rigor around describing what we're doing in therapy sessions and what's working. Yeah, and definitely. I want to note also that at the sort of in parallel, we also had the opportunity to run a series of studies as collaborators looking at risk factors yes. for eating disorders. And uh, with Ruth Striegel Moore, Ruth Weissman, um, Denise Wilfley, and colleagues. And I, I want to highlight both of those, both because they were formative in my career. So I want to thank you. <laughs> and uh, in terms of thinking rigorously, thinking critically, not assuming, uh, and asking some big questions. And also, I want to bring them both to the fore, because I think it was the treatment trials and looking at the risk factors 
these case control risk factor studies that actually came together for you in a way that were critical to the big idea that you want to really hone in on today. So let me hear more about that from you and, and how your thinking evolved around the big idea that you'd like to focus on. Well, through the 90s, um, this big American study was going on, Stanford, uh, Columbia study, and I was busy sort of supervising, if you like, or quality control. Um, but um, at Oxford, I, I was, I'd got slightly, um, well, it was very odd just studying bulimia nervosa. I, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with it um, because we'd get lots of referrals and people had something a bit similar to bulimia it wasn't and they couldn't enter the trials mm -hmm. and I felt initially we, we would try and find other people to treat these people but then I thought why don't we just treat them ourselves even um, though they're, they're not in a trial um, so and this got more and more interesting just opening the door and just saying asking primary care people to refer anyone with a significant eating disorder to us so we were taking anorexia we take basically anyone Mm -hmm. from a defined area uh, in the UK. Um, once you do that, you realize there's all sorts of eating problems out there. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't map onto the book, diagnostic book, too well. Uh, the, treat, the diagnostic manuals give you, well, one, they say there are these eating disorders, and they're categorized as entirely different psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that bothered me was if you listen to people, if you take careful, pay careful attention to their life and their account of their problems, they're moving across the diagnoses. Mm -hmm. um, I spent a lot of time talking this over with uh, two core colleagues of mine, Zafra Cooper and Rolf Schaffron. And then I remember one morning looking out the window in my office. And I was sort of drawing sort of things, trying to work, make sense of it. I thought, this is just mad. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to solve a problem. And I, it's, I'm not, the real problem is we shouldn't be dividing these things up. And I was just trying to work out different ways of dividing it up. I suddenly thought, why am I dividing it up? If I was on Mars looking down on Earth at people with eating problems, I wouldn't be cutting the cake. Mm -hmm. There's no divisions. There's an eating disorder. And it has various forms, and you move through its various forms. Some people, and some people get stuck in one bit of it. But I, I it came to be much more compelling to view um, eating disorders transdiagnostically, the key word, um, actually as a category in its own right. Mm -hmm. and not making subdivisions. So the next thing to do was, for me, um, was to think, well, how about thinking about a transdiagnostic treatment? Mm -hmm. It was very controversial. Some people made their careers studying anorexia. Mm -hmm. So what's this Fairburn coming along and saying, actually, we should just lump them together, anorexia and bulimia. Uh, and other people were bulimia experts. And you know, it, 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 it was... Uh, it, it, would, it wasn't the bang the book or the zeitgeist. In order to become a master, 
you need to learn the core principles. Yeah. You, you need to master the the rules and the laws and the principles. And once you get to a certain point that you know them well enough, you can become, you can use those principles to innovate. And that's the artistry, right? That's what an artist can do, right? But the artist first needs to understand the principles of the materials that the artist is working with. And I wonder if what you're describing is, I wonder for future generations, um, this tension, you, you need to know the core features of what someone who has more of the anorexia nervosa kinds of symptoms um, or someone who presents- You've got to understand the psychopathology. Right. I and would argue then, you don't need to understand the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, you need to understand, you could learn all about uh -huh. the problems, the pros that the psychopathology of eating disorders and how it's different in underweight people or different people who binge but don't diet. And you don't mm -hmm. know all that stuff. Um, definitely. I'm not sure you need to know this arbitrary way of cutting it up into You need categories. to cut it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, the thing I want to say is there was reaction against the Charles diagnostic view of an eating disorders, primarily by academics, mm -hmm. primarily by people who didn't treat people. Mm -hmm. The people who were really positive about it were therapists. Right. They Who's knew that? precisely half their patients didn't have anorexia bulimia. It mapped onto their reality. Mm -hmm. And I, that's where I was coming from, a clinic where I got to know all these people and they didn't fit. It's, mm -hmm. So it made immediate sense to the uh, clinical community of people therapists who were, um, and to have a treatment model that was where you were helped to match a treatment to the pro individual problems of the person, not to a diagnostic category, but to the actual individual characteristics of the person you're sitting with, it is a big change, mm -hmm. much more useful. Mm -hmm. It was much more person-centered, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's the therapists, the people actually listening to patients and trying to help them who really welcomed this. So if we take this, um, taking this trans-diagnostic framework yeah. uh, and understanding of the presentation of um, concerns that individuals with eating disorders come come forward with thinking about a transdiagnostic model from uh, the nature to the treatment. Yes. Uh, you've got good evidence for the utility, the clinical efficacy of this treatment and are really pushing hard uh, in terms of moving the field forward. This model and this framework has been part of really evolving the field's thinking about how do we understand eating disorders? Uh, how, do we, how do we treat eating disorders from a psychological therapy point of, of view? Yeah. Can you look back? It's always easier to describe how you got where you are today in reverse, right? But when yeah. you do look back, um, do you have a sense when you were wearing that those pink clothes and no shoes. <laughs> um, 
you know, what problem were you trying to solve at that time? And do you feel like you got there? For me, I felt the world was black and white mm-hmm. and became, changed into color in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, that we were the new generation and had to make things better. Uh, and don't take anything for granted. But I didn't have a long-term goal. I've always been fumbling forwards and just seeing what the next interesting problem is, as it were. I've actually been a bit of a failure in terms of being ambitious in a career sense. My ambition has been to do with solving problems. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking back, I think I mentioned that um, I did like public health as a sort of discipline when I was as a medical student. And I've always had a slight interest in changing the world sort of thing uh, and not just thinking about the persons in front of you. And so it's become slight mission more recently to uh, try and um, disseminate understanding and treatment of sort of psychological treatments, I think, are so underused and misused. And I'd like to get them around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my focus has been for the last five or more years on how do you disseminate effective psychological treatments. So I'm on a mission to try and get psychological treatments disseminated worldwide. Um, And so we're moving out of the eating sort of field here, uh, but in general. So, but that probably is slightly, is a sort of mindset of the 60s there. (laughs) That's right. um, And... um, well, it, it yeah. takes us back to your first comment of wanting to do something that made the world a better place, right? And so I wonder if we move into that phase of uh, the conversation here to when did you come to realize that you were an expert in the field? I didn't view myself as expert at all, uh, but I, I became very prominent very rapidly because of this sort of Russell paper and him saying it bulimia is un- uncommon and I rapidly had data showed that was wrong and him saying it was untreatable and I had data that that was wrong. So I, I suddenly became, when I was 30, invited to international conferences talking about bulimia and did a lot in, the, in my early 30s of trotting around the world to Australia, the States, giving keynote addresses. Uh, And there was a big conference, I think, in 84 in Cardiff. Uh, There was some big international ones. And one of my heroes was Paul Garfinkel, um, who was head of psychiatry in Toronto. I think that's a brilliant man who I sort of look up to to this day. I was giving the keynote address, and he was introducing me. And he introduced me as saying, here we have a true expert on eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me like that. And afterwards, he said, I meant it. You know much more than we do. We're the old generation. And he, it was moved me a lot because I actually looked up to him immensely and still do. You mentioned Paul Garfinkel. You've mentioned other mentors you have. And yeah. I know mentors and colleagues have been maybe a lifeline for you in the course of doing this work and want, as we think about 
your learnings over these decades and what you can share with uh, the current field and the future, as I said, the future of eating disorders. What do you have to say about mentors, your mentors and colleagues? And My career would not have happened without fantastic mentoring early on. I've been helped uh, by giants um, and they've made time. And I've tried to do that myself and will continue to try and do that. Um, the other thing I would say, though, to younger people coming up in the field is treat me like some, like I would treated the old Russell. Don't believe a word I'm saying. <laughs> uh, really look at the evidence uh, and, um, you know, be critical. You know, uh, the field will move on by not accepting what people like me say, but by questioning it. And you come with your own thoughts, but base it in clinical experience. Listen to people, patients. Um, understand the problem you're talking about. Don't just read it in a book. See people. Um, but be your own person in terms of your thinking. I think that's really quite profound, Chris. You end by saying, you know, see people. Yeah. And um, be curious and listen, listen, and, uh, and overthrow what people tell you, or at least challenge what people tell you enough to, you know, be courageous enough to ask some new questions, ask some hard questions, take a stance that maybe not everyone has already, um, signed on to and test it. You've been a rigorous scientist, always asking for the evidence, uh, and rigorous in a way that was about evidence, many ways of knowing, right? So from listening carefully to patients to complex quantitative analyses, we learn different aspects of what we need to know when we recognize that there are different ways of knowing and there are different bodies of knowledge and different offerings for us if we are paying attention. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Your this enormous idea around the transdiagnostic theory of eating disorders, what it means in terms of understanding the nature of eating disorders, what it means in terms of treatment has been an evolution as you describe it yourself from where you started to a state of real maturity and a state of enormous influence and impact. And as you say, we imagine it will continue, our understanding of the nature and treatment of eating disorders will continue to evolve if in fact the next generations take you up on the invitation and the challenge to keep questioning and Thank you for that. And thank you for all you've done for the field. It's an honor to be invited to do this and a pleasure. And I encourage everyone who's younger to um, go their own path, but um, don't take anything for granted.